0: Alright, so in our text today, we're going to see a stark contrast between two groups of people. And so the contrast is going to show the difference between religion or relationship, or said another way, between legalism and love. And so as we finish chapter 11 today, get through verses 45 through 57, we're going to see the legalism of the religious leaders, get this, which sprang from their unregenerate hearts. And then at the end of the message, when we begin chapter 12, we're going to see the love of Martha, Lazarus, and Mary, get this, which sprang from their regenerate hearts. You say, what are you talking about, regenerate or unregenerate hearts? Well, when I speak of a regenerate heart, I'm speaking of the doctrine of regeneration, which has to do with a new spiritual birth, otherwise known as being born again. All right, so if you remember, if you were with us, in John chapter three, Jesus sits down with one of the top religious leaders of Israel of that day, a guy named Nicodemus. And Jesus said this, and on the count of three, I want everybody to uh, say this verse out loud like you mean it. You ready? One, two, three, go. Now, how many of you guys believe Jesus knows what he's talking about? Right? Okay, so it's super clear, and he's talking to a religious leader. Okay, so even though Nicodemus was a religious man, he was still dead in trespasses and sins. He still had an unregenerate heart that needed to be quickened or made alive by the Spirit of God. And so even though Nicodemus dotted every religious I and crossed every religious T, he still needed to inwardly experience forgiveness and a spiritual birth otherwise known as regeneration. Now how could that occur? Well, we always interpret verses within the context of the chapter. So John 3, 3, Jesus says you must be born again. John three thirty six, which is the last verse of John chapter 3, John tells us, whoever believes, can you guys say the word believes, please? In the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So I've told you before, but I'll remind you again because we have visitors. But the word believe is not just intellectual assent. The word believe includes intellectual assent, but it also, more importantly, has to do with personal trust. All right, I'll read Vine's expository dictionary definition of believe. Quote, to be persuaded of And hence, to place confidence in. The question you got to answer in your heart is Have you been persuaded about Jesus and have you placed your confidence in Jesus? It means to trust, to have reliance upon, not mere credence. And so when a person turns to Jesus Christ, I'm talking about in genuine repentance and faith, receiving Christ as the Savior and Lord of their lives, they receive eternal spiritual life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And so the Spirit of God causes their heart to become regenerated. But, super clear, it's black and white, if a person rejects the Son of God, they will not experience eternal spiritual life. Their heart will remain unregenerate. They'll continue to be dead in their trespasses and sins. And so it's super, super, super clear in the Gospel of John, there's two groups of people on earth, saved or lost. And you gotta understand, you gotta figure it out in your heart, which group you are actually in. My question to you this morning is, have you been born again? And if you're not sure about that, at the end of the service, we'll give you an opportunity um, to uh, turn to Christ. And so where are we in the Gospel of John? Well, Jesus just performed what is arguably, we saw it last week, his most astounding miracle to date, and that is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so um, right after, can you remember this from last week? Right after, Jesus uh, calls out his friend from the tomb, Lazarus, come out! Right after Lazarus comes shuffling out of that tomb because he was wrapped in linen cloths, soaked with spices. Right after Jesus gives the command, unbind him and let him go. Did you know that the crowd was divided? How many of you guys know that in every crowd there's a division? Believers and unbelievers. It's just the way it is. And so we're gonna see that right now in John 11, verse 45. So if you're looking right now at John 11:45, 45, can you say Amen. All right, so many of the Jews, therefore, after the raising of Lazarus, uh, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. All right, everybody look at me real quick. How could they not? How could they not believe in Jesus? After he raises a guy whose corpse had been in the tomb for four days, raises him to life. But I'll say it again, how many of you guys know in every crowd there's believers and unbelievers? no matter what the evidence that is given to them. Because it's not just a head issue, it's a heart issue. And so in verse 46, it says, but some of them that were actually there and saw it, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. All right, so after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, praise the Lord, he, it, says, it says that many of the Jews Uh, trusted in him as their Messiah. Praise God. But some of them went and told on Jesus. Now you guys remember when we were kids growing up and we did something to our sibling that was not so good and they went and told on us, like, Mom, he did so and so. Well, that's basically what's happening here. Except what we did was bad. What Jesus did was really good. Pharisees! Right? They're telling on Jesus. So they go to Jerusalem, which is just a hop, skip, and a jump from Bethany, less than two miles, and they tell on Jesus. I want you to picture the scene, okay? And so we always like to do this at Calvary. We like to try to get you to get in the sandals of the people 2,000 years ago, see it in your mind's eye, all right? And so there you were at Lazarus' tomb. There's a crowd, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 Jews, right? And so they're there to mourn this prominent uh, popular family, mourn with them, and Jesus comes on the scene and he says, Lazarus, come out, and, and Lazarus comes out, right? Risen from the dead. Many of the Jews, whoa, they're just like so moved. They believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Others, can you believe this? Remain unmoved in the sight of that kind of evidence. And they're thinking, We're gonna tell on Jesus. So they take off, and they hurry as fast as they can, less than two miles. I don't know if they're jogging or not, but they make it to to Jerusalem. They find some Pharisees. I don't know if they're out of breath. I don't know if they're holding their side, right? And they're like, hey guys, you're not gonna believe it. Jesus is back, and you're not gonna believe what he just did. He just raised a dead guy from the tomb. The guy's corpse had been in there for four days, and he said, come out. The guy came out, and now word is spreading everywhere. And what did the Pharisees do right after they heard this report? Look at verse 47. So the chief priests, which by the way, were primarily Sadducees. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the, and what's the word there? Council. All right, everybody look at the screen. The Greek word for council, when you look at the Strong's Greek lexicon, which we access through the blue letter Bible, uh, awesome website for your Bible study, but the council was the Synedrion, the Synedrion, and it means simply the Sanhedrin, the great council at Jerusalem. And so if you're new to the Bible, new to the New Testament, new to the political and religious environment of that time in Jesus' day, um, not just you, but everybody in the church family, you gotta understand the Sanhedrin and what it looked like so you can understand who it was that ordered Jesus to die. Okay, and so the Sanhedrin was the highest governing body in Israel during the Greek and the Roman periods, and they held legislative, judicial, and executive power over all the Jewish people, all right? And so what century are we in um, when we're talking about when Jesus walked the earth? What century? You tell me. First century AD, okay? So most people know hit the rewind button, when you go back to 63 BC, when the Roman um, um, military uh, general Pompey captured Jerusalem, which empire uh, began to rule over and dominate Israel? What, what empire, you tell me? The Roman Empire. All right, and so why in the world would the Roman Empire allow that to exist? I mean, it's a vast empire, it's all around the Mediterranean basin. Why in the world would they? Well, it's because that's, that's what they did for the people that they um, conquered and uh, put into um, their dominance under the iron fist of Rome. Um, they would often let them have their own um, governing body. And so they did it in Israel. And you think about it, this is a smart political move so that Rome, Caesar in Rome, he can make sure that there's peace in that area of his empire. And not only that, the more issues that the Sanhedrin dealt with, the less issues that Rome Rome had to worry about. And so the Sanhedrin was made up of 71 members, including the high priest, and there were two groups within this governing body, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. All right, so let's look at the Sadducees. The Sadducees were an aristocratic religious political group that oversaw the temple and its proceedings. They accepted only the written law of Moses. What does that mean? That means Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's all that they accept as authoritative. And notice this, this is actually a good thing. They rejected all oral tradition. Now it's important for you to understand what that means because you're not gonna really understand the Gospels Um, in their entirety until you get this. And so the oral tradition was the man-made religious rules that were passed on from rabbi to rabbi, from generation to generation. And the Sadducees said, no, we reject those man-made religious rules, which we'll find out in a moment, the Pharisees loved. And we're only gonna accept Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now, here's a bad thing. They rejected the, three lines up from the bottom, middle of the paragraph, anything supernatural. They rejected it. That means they rejected the afterlife. When you're dead, you're dead. They rejected the immortality of the soul. They rejected the future resurrection. And they rejected the spirit world of angels and demons. Now the high priest at this time, his name was Caiaphas, he was a Sadducee. He's one of these guys. And he ruled uh, from AD 18 to AD 36. By the way, did you know that they discovered Caiaphas' family tomb? The Caiaphas. Okay, and so I'm going to read to you from an article, uh, just a small excerpt from an article from the New York Times. They found it in... Um, uh, 1990. This article is from 1992. So I don't know if you heard this. It didn't make front lines. It didn't make world news because most of the people don't care, right? But we do, especially apologists who are always looking for. Um, of course, we believe the Bible is God's word, but not everybody believes the Bible is God's word. And so, whenever we see outside of the Bible some evidence that The scriptures are true, we jump all over it. Okay, and so, quote, Israeli archeologists have discovered the family tomb of Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest who presided at the trial of Jesus and delivered him to the Romans to be crucified. New York Times. Buried in an ancient cave on the outskirts of Jerusalem, the family's bones were sealed in ornate and elaborately carved ossuaries. An ossuary is a bone box. Okay, the Jews never cremated their dead. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with cremation. I'm saying the Jews never cremated their dead. They buried them, and then when their body decayed, they went and took the bones, and they put the bones in a box called an ossuary. Okay, and so, um, uh, ossuaries, ceremonial boxes, used widely by the Jews in the late first century. Archeologists say no comparable evidence exists for the remains of any other such major figure mentioned in the New Testament. And after <clears throat> 2,000 years, the presence of Caiaphas' bones in the tomb cannot be finally verified either, but the age of the bones, the inscriptions on the ossuaries, and the artifacts that surrounded them all point directly towards his influential family. If you go with us to Israel, we'll take you to the Israel Museum And if you uh, follow us, we'll take you. um, And what happened was there was 12 ossuaries in this cave that they found, and they took the most elaborate one, which on the side, it says, um, Joseph, son of Caiaphas, and it's there, we'll take you, (laughs) and we'll show you a 2,000-year-old bone box um, with the bones of, uh, this is a debate whether it's his bones or his son's bones, but nonetheless, they found his family burial site, and so um, Caiaphas and most of the chief priests are Sadducees, and listen to this, they held the majority of seats within the Sanhedrin. Most people are kind of cloudy on the Sadducees, but most people know all about the Pharisees, right? So the Pharisees, they're a middle class, so Sadducees were aristocratic upper class. Pharisees are a middle class religious political group that put their, so frustrating, their oral tradition on the same level of authority as God's written word. What are they thinking? Well, what are people thinking today who do the same thing? Okay, and so they accepted, praise the Lord, they accepted the supernatural, the afterlife, the immortality of the soul, the future resurrection, the spirit world of angels and demons, but they were legalists. All right, and so even though the Pharisees held the minority of seats in the Sanhedrin, they had... They were very popular among the people. They had great influence in Judea and up in the Galilee, and here's why. The Sadducees would usually hang out in Jerusalem around the temple, because they're all about the temple proceedings, but the Pharisees, they got out and rubbed shoulders with the people. And so they were often leaders of the synagogue, and there's synagogues all over at that time. And so the Pharisees were very influential And they believed in the reality of the supernatural, praise the Lord, and the spirit realm, praise the Lord, but Jesus rebukes the Pharisees over and over. Why? Because of their legalism. All right, so we're defining terms today. Let me define what is a legalist. A legalist is a religious person, and by the way, this does have application to today because there's a how many guys know there's a lot of legalists in the church, quote unquote, church. Alright, so a religious person who believes and teaches that salvation can be earned by works. Now, you you tell me, is that right or wrong? Wrong. I hope everybody says wrong on the count of three. One, two, three. Wrong! And listen, evangelical pastors like me are going to keep preaching this till we're blue in the face. Because most Americans, I saw it last night on a program I was watching with my wife, most Americans think, you be a good boy, you be a good girl, and if there's a heaven, you'll make it. Wrong answer. Hell is filled with religious people. Okay, and so if you wanna learn more about legalists, read Galatians and try not to blush You think I get excited and passionate on Sunday morning? Check out Paul and the way he handled Galatians and what he said about legalism and legalists of the day. Now what's one of the hallmarks of a legalist? They also elevate their man-made religious rules to the same level of authority as God's written word. That's wrong. In fact, some of those guys put their man-made religious rules above God's word, and that really made Jesus mad. Read Matthew 23. Whoa, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, right? And so they put their man-made religious rules on the same level of authority as God's written word and require that those in their sphere of influence keep their rules, ever been in a church like that? In order to be right with God. All right, ladies and gentlemen, what I just presented to you is the Sanhedrin made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. What I just presented to you is the Sadducees who were the naturalists of the day and were all about their political power. And what I just presented to you are the Pharisees who, even though, praise the Lord, they accepted the supernatural and the spirit realm, they were often angry legalists. By the way, did you know that those two groups exist today? They're not called Pharisees and Sadducees anymore, but nonetheless, they're still in the church today. What do you mean, pastor? Here's what I mean. I'm totally going off my notes here. Don't send me emails. (laughs) But we have Sadducees in the church today. What's that? That's naturalists. They deny the supernatural. And what do you call that when the Bible was filled with supernatural events and situations? What you call that is rank unbelief. And so there are churches today and Christians today and they're called theological liberals. Why? Because they don't believe the Bible is God's word and they also don't believe things like the virgin birth. They don't believe things like the um, vicarious death of Christ. They will ordain gay clergy. They will marry homosexual couples. My wife and I, three years ago, were in Boston for our 30th wedding anniversary, and we went in June, which is Gay Pride Month. And as we walked through Boston, which, by the way, I love Boston. I'm an American history buff, and so I'm happy in Boston. All right, but as we walked along, I couldn't believe how many churches and let me go like this again churches who had the rainbow flag waving outside the church. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you something. Homosexuality is not something to celebrate, it's something to repent of. Now, unless anyone tries to send me an email and say how homophobic I am, I'm not homophobic, because not only do I think that we need to call out the sin of homosexuality, speak the truth in love, and call people to repentance, but also, if you're heterosexual, and you're living with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you're in sin too, and you need to repent, okay? Listen, let the kindness of God lead you to repentance. The Bible is super, super clear. All sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman is sin. And we'll never stop teaching that in this church. Never. It's sin. But if you like your darkness more than the light, you're not gonna come to the light. And maybe you have a hard time with this. My encouragement is go go to the light. Don't try to change yourself, let Jesus change you. He can change you and you'll experience a love you've never experienced before. And so the Sadducees were the naturalists, rank unbelief. But how many of you guys know there's Pharisees in the church today? And so what is this? This is people who teach and believe that salvation can be earned by works. This is people who the evidence of their legalism is they elevate man-made religious rules to the equal authority of God's word. That's not right. By the way, I'm not talking about the laws of the land. I am really taking a lot of time here. But anyway, I'm not talk- we have a, legislati- a legislative branch, right, in Florida and in the United States of America, and they make laws. And then you have the police who enforce the laws. I'm not talking about that, that's a good thing. By the way, can we right now thank our police officers for putting their necks on the line every day for our safety? So important. And and listen, I I said that one time to a, a group of people and I asked everybody, can we thank our police officers and I saw a guy doing this and the woman next to him pushed down his hands. Listen. We gotta support our police officers. What kind of rank anarchy would we have in our neighborhoods without the police? So when you go out and you see them today as you leave, thank thank, um, them personally for what they do. And they don't get a lot of money for putting their necks on the line every day for us. Now, I also wanna say, that we're not talking about the laws of the land, we're talking about religious rules, okay? And so we're not gonna take religious rules and put them on the same level of authority as God's word. How many of you guys understand that this is our final authority for all matters of faith and practice? Right, this is it, right here. This is it. And so, um, we have the Sanhedrin, we have the Sadducees, we have the Pharisees, usually these two groups fought like dogs because of their different viewpoints But when it came to Jesus Christ, guess what? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they united together in order to bring Jesus down. Now, I said that Caiaphas was a Sadducee. What does that mean? That means he doesn't believe in supernatural things and he doesn't believe in the resurrection. So can you imagine what's going through Caiaphas' mind when he gets the report that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? What is going on in this guy's mind? Right Before he called the meeting, he's thinking this through. And they're like, Caiaphas. And they tell him the story. And Caiaphas must have thought, what? Jesus did what? Oh my goodness, what am I supposed to do now? I'm a Sadducee. Am I supposed to stand up before my colleagues and say that the resurrection is real and Jesus of Nazareth is our Messiah? Am I supposed to do that? How many of you guys think Caiaphas did that? No, no. Every time people see his bones or the bones of his family in the Israel Museum, they should be reminded of what this guy was. He was a Christ rejector, and so he's thinking, no doubt, if I admit that Jesus is uh, is, is the Messiah, I'm going to lose my power. I'm going to lose my position. I'm going to lose my prestige. I'm going to lose my pension. No way, Jesus has got to die. Hey, call a meeting of the Sanhedrin. I guarantee you that's what's going on in this guy's heart. Why? Because by their fruit you will know them. And he said, crucify the blasphemer. Okay, so now we look at verse 47. The chief priests, I want to see if you've been listening, who were predominantly what? Sadducees, thank you. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, Sadducees and Pharisees, gathered the council and said, now I love this, what are we to do for this man performs many what? Signs. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, right here is an apologetics moment in the Bible. The word apologetics, apologia in the Greek, it means to make a defense for the faith. And so that's why I love guys like Frank Turek. why I love guys like um, Sean McDowell. That's why I love guys like Lee Strobel, why? Because they have made it their passion and career in life to be apologists to give in a defense for the faith. Okay, so we're right there right now. Did you guys notice in verse 47 that the Sanhedrin did not deny that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? They didn't deny it. Nor did they deny that he did other supernatural miracles. Why not? Because the eyewitness testimony was so strong in the first century AD. I was watching Lee Strobel's um, uh, video uh, on Right Now Media called The Case for Christ. Okay, so there's a movie called The Case for Christ, which I highly recommend, it's on Prime Video. There's a book called The Case for Christ, and then there's this teaching series on Right Now Media. By the way, if Calvary's your church home, um, and you don't have Right Now Media, you can have it for free. Okay, just go to our website, click on What Do We Do, click on Discipleship, scroll down to Right Now Media, and you can sign up for free, and you can get great resources from Lee Strobel and other people as well. But I'm, I'm going through this, the first uh, teaching, and they were interviewing people, I think, on the streets of Chicago, and they are interviewing this one lady, and she said, regarding the stories of Jesus in the Gospels, that they are, quote, folklore... Historical misrepresentations and wishful thinking. And I, I hear I heard that and my heart broke. My heart broke because you know, you think about this. How sad is it that some people come to these conclusions without truly examining the evidence with an open heart? Listen, if you're here today and you're you're skeptical about whether Jesus was and is the Son of God, or you're skeptical whether or not he actually did supernatural miracles or rose from the dead, I wanna encourage you, be an investigator, do the research. That's what Lee Strobel did while he was an atheist and his wife got saved and he's like, I didn't sign up for this, and so he thought he was gonna prove Christianity as a false religion. Guess what, he got saved. (laughs) Christ regenerated his heart. Why? He did the evidence. He he, uh, did the work to to find the evidence. All right, and so the truth is this. If you're listening, say amen. Amen. Jesus' miracles were seen by eyewitnesses. And they were written down in the Gospels way too early for folklore or legend to take place. And so even Jesus' arch arch enemies did not deny that he did supernatural things. And so that's what they're saying now in this special meeting of the Sanhedrin. They said at the end of verse 47, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our Nation, In other words, these guys are saying, hey, if Jesus goes on like this, the people are gonna proclaim him as king. And do we really think that Caesar over in Rome is gonna like that? No, 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 he's gonna send his forces from the Antonio Fortress, but also from Rome, and they're gonna come and they're gonna crush us. We're gonna lose our place, that's the temple, and we're gonna lose our nation That's Israel. And now, let's hear from the guy whose bones, or at least his family's bones they found. Look at verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Rude. By the way, when you have an unregenerate heart, you're rude. Why? Because that's just... Your fallen human nature. Verse 50. Nor do you understand that it is better for you (laughs) that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation, not that the whole nation should perish. Wow. Caiaphas just went from a politician to a prophet and he didn't even realize it. How do you know he didn't realize it? What he's saying here? Look at verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not the nation only, but also um, to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so Caiaphas unconsciously utters a divine prophecy, not because of his person. The guy was a religious fraud. No, because of his position. He was high priest that year. Now, what was the prophecy again? I want you to really check it out in verse 50, okay? Look at this prophecy from an unregenerate, unbelieving man. He says in verse 50, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die, and I want you guys to please say the next three words. For the people. What does that mean, that Jesus was a substitute. One man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Regarding this really amazing prophecy, Dr. Charles Ryrie said this. Caiaphas could hardly realize the full meaning of his own words. He was simply expressing the thought of a political collaborator with Rome, and yet those words express the central doctrine of the Christian faith, and that is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, if you haven't been tuning in completely, I really want you to tune in now, because I'm sharing the gospel right now. I always try to fit it in somewhere in the message, okay? I'll start with a question. Why in the world did the eternal word, the eternal logos, leave heaven and clothe himself in human flesh, Why in the world was he born of a virgin, lived a perfect, sinless life, and voluntarily go to a Roman cross and die? Why? Paul tells us right here. For, can you guys please shout out the next two words? There it is. Substitutionary atonement. Listen, this is how I got saved. I was a religious young man, I thought, I just gotta be good enough and God will accept me someday. And my heart remained unregenerate until I understood this truth. For our sake, he, that's the father, made him, that's the son, to be sin. Jesus took our sin into his body on the tree. The one who knew no sin, he was the lamb without blemish and without spot. Why? So that in him, in Christ, we might become self-righteous. Is that what it says? No, that we might become the righteousness of who? God, ladies and gentlemen, please read Romans. Please listen to my teaching, um, I think a whole year, through Romans. It's on the website. But here's what you got to come to grips with. It's a gospel of grace. We don't deserve it. We turn to Christ in repentance and faith, and what does the Father do? He declares us righteous, and what does he do? He wraps us up in his righteousness so that the righteousness of Christ, so when he looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees his son righteousness, and then he says, welcome home. Come on in. The veil is torn. Come into the presence of a holy Father who loves you. Your sin's been washed away by the blood of the lamb. You have communion now with God. Your heart is regenerate. And you're a child of God. That's the gospel. And so Jesus died on the cross, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. Why? In order, verse 52, to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Verse 53. So from that day on, so after Jesus um, hears about the Sanhedrin's decision to kill him, from that day on they made plans to put him to death and Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews. But he went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim and there he stayed with the disciples. Okay, so Jesus hears the Sanhedrin made a decision, they're going to kill you. And so what does he do? Not out of fear but it's not his time yet. He goes northeast about 13 miles to a little village called Ephraim. He hangs out with his disciples. And now we pick it up in verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem, where the temple was, before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests, by the way, most of the chief priests were who? Sadducees, I got at least 20 of you guys who are with me. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Now I told you in my intro That as we finish up chapter 11, I will show you the legalism of the religious leaders which sprang from their unregenerate hearts. Okay, so I hope you've been following. Because they rejected the Son of God, they could not receive eternal spiritual life. Their hearts remained unregenerate. And what did their unregenerate hearts look like? Well, they were hard, they were selfish, and they were hateful. That is the fruit of having an unregenerate heart. Their hearts were hard. Verse 47, I already talked about it. Within the meeting of the Sanhedrin, what are we gonna do? This guy keeps performing signs. And even in the face of an amazing miracle like Lazarus coming out of the tomb, they say, oh, we don't believe in him. What do you call that? You call that a hard heart. What is another... Um, Um, Way that we can see that a heart is regenerate. Well, this this is so selfish, right? Look at verse 48. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, God forbid that, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're gonna take away um, our place, that's the temple, and our nation, that's Israel. But listen, behind all of that, you know what's going on in these guys' hearts? They don't want to lose their power. They don't want to lose their prestige. They don't want to lose their pension. Right, and so kill them. Right, for the, for the religious leaders, life's all about me, myself, and I. Does that sound familiar? That's our culture. Everybody's living for the kingdom of self instead of the kingdom of the savior. And so what's best for me what can I get out of this situation? And in their selfish worldview, everything revolves around what makes them happy. Third of all, they're hateful. We already saw that in verse 53. They decide they're gonna kill Jesus, okay? And so as Jesus' popularity is increasing, what's happening to their popularity? It's decreasing, and they become so envious of Jesus, they're like, we're gonna kill the guy. So what is that? That's pure, unadulterated hate. That's the fruit of an unregenerate heart, All right, so how many of you guys are ready for something a little more positive (laughs) this morning? All right, thank God for chapter 12. All right, look at chapter 12. Stay with me to the end here. Six days before Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Okay, and so right now what we see is that the Lord returns to the area of Jerusalem, Um, Because why? His time has come. We're here. Okay, so six days from now, the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God is gonna sacrifice himself for the sins of the world. You say, we're only in chapter 12. There's 21 chapters in this book. Well, that's because of the upper room discourse, which by the way, I can't wait to get there. Chapters 14, 15, 16, 17. If you have a red letter Bible, it's all red letters. It's all Jesus teaching, and we're gonna go slowly through that and apply it to our lives. It's gonna be great. But the time has come. It's time for the Lamb of God to sacrifice himself. And here's the thing. The Lord um, returns to Bethany, and he goes, according to Matthew and Mark, to the home of Simon the leper. Okay, so Matthew and Mark tells, tells us that they have a big Dinner for Jesus, and it's at Simon the leper's home. John doesn't tell us it's, it's at Simon the leper's home. All right, let me ask you guys this Do you think Simon still had leprosy when everybody came over to his house? Yes or no? No. Why? Because if he still had leprosy, he'd be outside of Bethany screaming, Unclean, unclean, don't come around me. But how many of you guys know that Jesus loves people? no matter what's going on in their life, and Jesus healed this guy. And so this guy throws a party for Jesus in Bethany. And so now we're gonna read verses two all the way through 11. I want you to see the flow of this beautiful, beautiful scene here. Verse, if you're looking at chapter 12, verse two, say amen. Okay, so look at this. So they gave a dinner for Jesus there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But we do have to deal with this negative verse. Judas Iscariot, one of his quote-unquote disciples, not really, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Everybody, look at me. I mean, how low can you go? This guy's stealing from the ministry. By the way, as far as we know, in fact, we know for sure, Judas never repented never trusted in Jesus as the Messiah. And so what's the fruit of that? Stealing from the ministry. And Jesus said to Judas, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. If you have the ESV, at the bottom there's the note. Leave her alone, she intended to keep it for my burial. He's gonna be killed and buried in six days. He says, for the poor you always have with you, but you don't always have me, all right? And so I told you in my intro that as we begin chapter 12, what we're gonna do is see the love, right, of Martha and Lazarus and Mary, which sprang forth from their regenerate hearts. And so because they put their trust in the Son, they received eternal spiritual life and their hearts became regenerate by the Spirit of God. And what did their regenerate hearts look like? Now, do you guys see what, see what I'm doing here in the message? I'm contrasting the unregenerate religious leaders, so we have a picture of them, with the regenerate siblings from Bethany. So what does their regenerate heart look like? It's helpful, relational, and not only that, worshipful. So that's the fruit of having a regenerate heart, just the opposite of the hard, selfish, uh, hateful hearts of the religious leaders. And so first of all, we see Martha had a helpful heart. Now this is where it becomes really applicable to our lives here. So I hope what you're doing is you're taking inventory of your own heart, asking if you're really saved, asking if you're really born again, because if you're really saved, if you're really born again, there's gonna be fruit that looks like you have a helpful heart. And so it just simply says in verse um, two that Martha served. Now how many of you guys think that Martha found joy in her serving? Yeah, you should try it sometime. Honestly, all of us need to have this kind of heart. Why, because ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening right now, can you say amen here? you will find more more joy serving the Lord and others than you'll find in serving yourself. Our culture doesn't say that. Our culture says serve yourself, serve yourself, serve yourself. It's all about your kingdom. That's the way to misery. But Martha served. So my point is when Jesus Christ changes somebody's heart, all of a sudden they have a desire to be helpful. Helpful. They wanna serve the Lord, they wanna serve his people. Salvation produces a desire to serve as we see in Martha's life. And did you notice that this is totally different than Luke 10, where in Luke 10, right, she walks up to Jesus and she stands over him and, Lord, make her help me, right? Mary, she's complaining like crazy in her service. So not only do we see that Martha got saved, Martha's being sanctified because she's done with all that. She's just serving the Lord with a, with a, a, a attitude of gratitude. Second of all, we see that Lazarus had a relational heart. And so what's happening here is he's hanging out with the Lord. And how many of you guys think that Lazarus found joy in his fellowship with the Lord? Yeah, absolutely. And so my point here is that when your heart's been changed by Jesus Christ... It becomes relational. In other words, you start to desire quantity of fellowship with the Lord and quantity of fellowship with his people. Salvation produces a desire for for, for fellowship, which we see in Lazarus's life. And then third of all, Mary had what kind of a heart? Worshipful heart. Because of her extravagant act of worship and what she did, she worships the Lord how many of you guys think she found joy in her worship? Okay, so what's my point? It's the same thing. When Jesus Christ has changed somebody's heart, then what happens? Their heart becomes worshipful, and they actually desire to praise and adore their Redeemer. In other words, they don't come into the church and just stand there to watch a performance and then have a pharisaical, critical attitude, like I don't, know, I don't like what that person's wearing or I don't like how that person is singing or whatever. No! Not at all. They come in and they sense the presence of the Lord because their spirit has been made alive by the Spirit of God. And they, like Mary of Bethany, worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. It's not religion. It's a relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so we see that salvation produced a desire to worship. and We see it in Mary's life. And so I want you to see the whole scene because it's so beautiful, okay? So go back there in your mind's eye. There's Jesus and at least some of his disciples, right? Judas is with them. And they walk up, boom, 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 boom. They're at the home of Simon the leper. And Simon opens the door and Jesus greets his host. Hey, Simon, what's up? Right, high five or whatever. And Simon's like, hey, look, look. Smooth as silk, man. I could never thank you enough. And Jesus is like, oh man, don't, don't worry about it. Don't, don't mention it. And he's like, come on in, sit down. And they go in and they sit like Leonardo da Vinci paints the last supper in western style table that's high where they're all on one side of the table and they're all like posing for a picture. You think that's how it was? No, it's called a triclinium. In that culture, it's a triclinium, it's a very low table. They literally walk in and they take their spot, oh, I'm getting old, around the table like this. And notice where are my feet? Sticking back, that's gonna be important here in a moment. And the table's like this big and they're eating with each other, that's why John could lay on Jesus' bosom at the Last Supper. So they're all around the triclinium. There's Jesus, there's the disciples, there's Lazarus, freshly raised from the dead. And you know, I like to try to think about this and what what are they talking about? I don't know. But maybe Matthew says to Lazarus, hey man, what was it like being dead for four days? (laughs) And he's like, well my body was dead but my spirit wasn't dead. I was in paradise. Oh man, who'd you see there? Who did I not see? (laughs) Moses, Elijah, Moses and Elijah? What do they look like? And Peter's like, I know. (laughs) Jesus took me, James and John too, and we went up to the Mount Hermon and we saw Jesus transfigured and Moses and Elijah. So I got to meet them and they're all like, shut up, Peter, you're always bragging. You think you're so great? I'm actually better, right? That's what they actually did, arguing. right, how many of you guys know we all need to be sanctified? Okay, and then Mary comes into the room. And she has her, looks very different than this, she has her alabaster flask that's filled with expensive oil. Listen to this. This oil has been extracted from a root of a nard plant found in India and imported to Jerusalem. So this stuff is super, super expensive. Verse five says it's worth 300 denarii. What is that? That's one year's wage for a common laborer. And Jesus looks up, and she takes her position at his feet, and she breaks open his feet, which, by the way, are sticking out from the triclinium, and she breaks open the flask and anoints his feet. You know you could hear a pin drop in the room, right? Jesus feels one year's wages being poured out on his feet. Matthew and Mark tell us she also poured it over his head. And so now this expensive ointment is dripping from his hair down his beard. Some people are thinking awkward, right? (laughs) Listen, sometimes when we come in here And you may feel like it's awkward for me to express my love. Hey, do it anyway. Express your love, your devotion, your honor of Jesus Christ. And so now it's dripping down his face, but it's not dripping down his feet because she's wiping his feet with her hair. It's a breathtaking scene. Simon's home is filled with the beautiful aroma. And what Mary of Bethany did that day, I think, was the most extravagant act of worship in the entire New Testament. And Jesus is so impressed by this. He says in in Matthew that wherever this gospel is preached around the world, what Mary has done will be told in remembrance of her. Did you know right now we are fulfilling Jesus' prophecy? Jesus remembers the extravagant act of worship. And I just wonder, I'm not trying to put you on a guilt trip. The, the bottom line, I think you figured it out by now. All I'm asking is are you born again? Because when you're born again, things kind of take care of themselves. And so are you putting Jesus Christ first with your time, with your talent, with your treasure, or you got him back on the back burner somewhere as you live for yourself? Have you been born again? And so one last time, here's the contrast. First of all, we have the religious leaders who had unregenerate hearts that were hard, selfish, hateful. And why did they have unregenerate hearts? Because they rejected the Son of God. Second of all, we have Martha, Lazarus, and Mary, and they have regenerate hearts that are helpful, relational, Worshipful? Why did they have regenerate hearts? Because they put their faith in Jesus Christ and he changed them. And so, in closing, I leave you with the inspired words of Paul. If anyone is, here's the key, in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. How many of you guys know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Right? Absolutely. And so if you'll turn to Christ in repentance and faith, receiving him as the Savior and the Lord of your life, he will give you a regenerate heart. And not only will he change your heart, he'll change your life he will make you, through the sanctification process, more helpful, more relational, more worshipful as you walk in a relationship of love, love with the Lord. And all God's people said...